0: Hey everyone, and welcome to season two of Make Good. We have a great season in store for you, but before we dive into episode one, I have someone I'd like to introduce you to. This is Liz.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Liz and I'm the executive producer of Make Good season two. I'm also an architect living and working in Melbourne. We have a really interesting lineup of guests this season and we look forward to sharing it with you.
0: Liz is adding to her executive producer role this season and is going to be joining me for most of the podcasts. You'll hear from her with an insightful question or two during most episodes. Now let's get into season two. Nick Douse is an urban beekeeper, artist and bee advocate based in Melbourne. He is the founder of Honeyfingers, an urban beekeeping collective, honey brand and creative studio. Honeyfingers explores bee cultures and the intersection between farming, food, art, history, design and education in the context of bees, beekeeping and honey. Nick believes that beekeeping can open our eyes to the important natural systems in our cities, systems that contribute meaningfully to the food we grow and consume. We covered a lot of interesting ground in this discussion, including what it means to be a foundationless beekeeper, how bees dance to communicate with each other, and most importantly, why coarse filtered raw honey tastes so good. I hope you enjoy our chat with Nick. Hey Nick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation, Ben. I really appreciate it. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do?
2: Sure. My name is Nick Dowse and I'm the founder of Honeyfingers, which is many things. It's uh, an urban beekeeping collective. It's a honey brand. It's an educational and training uh, provider. And it's also a creative studio, among other things. So lots of stuff.
0: We noticed that you're also an artist and a poet as well and it sounds like there's this real multidisciplinary approach to Honeyfingers. Yeah. Could you talk to that a little bit and why um, that multidisciplinary approach and and these other artistic endeavours are
2: important to what you're doing? Sure. So I think with Honeyfingers there was never really a plan from the start. We just, my family bought me an introduction to beekeeping course and it was just a deep dive from there and things just sort of happened. So I'd go beekeeping and then I'd say to my, and my friends would be curious and they're like, can I come beekeeping? And I'd be like, sure, come beekeeping. And we'd document that on Instagram. And what happened was a lot of my friends are architects or artists or writers. And as we went beekeeping, we'd talk about projects. And before I knew it, all of a sudden, we would be um, doing these, <clears throat> these little creative projects. and. If it was with a chef, we'd be doing a collaboration around food. If it was with an artist, we'd be doing a collaboration with sculpture. If it was with a musician, we'd be be doing music. So this kind of multidisciplinary approach emerged and I was really okay with it as long as it was always centred around bees. So that intersection of bees and the community, the intersection of bees and and, and human culture and what we do has always been at the centre of Honeyfingers, and it just sort of seemed like a, a natural thing to do to pursue all these different projects with all these different wonderful creative people.
0: Do you think that that's helped spread the um, the message of Honeyfingers out a little further?
2: I I, I think so, yeah. And we you know when we sort of reflect on what we do, which we do from time to time, um, we've sort of come to this conclusion that. When we take someone beekeeping and they put their hand inside a beehive and they, you know, stick their finger in a bit of honeycomb and they taste it, they become part of this local food ecology, you know, and bees are so amazing at plugging people into the natural world and the natural world is on the roof here in in Brunswick as much as it is in, in you know, northwest Tasmania and... And there's this fascination people have with the natural world and they love feeling connected to it, but also that's hugely inspiring. And so that kind of inevitably leads to these creative pursuits with um, with some people. And it's a really interesting gateway, if you like, into the issues around what's going on with food security and with biodiversity and with urban ecosystems and... It brings a wide variety of people into it, and I think what the creative projects do is really um, engage with people's curiosity. So they get really curious. It's like, well, how did that happen? You know, why have the bees attached honeycomb to bread? Or, you know, do bees make different sounds within a within a beehive? And or, or what sort of activity goes on within a beehive? And they start as they start to ask those questions, they unpack a whole lot of information that's related back to to our situation in, in cities. Cause you know, usually I work in cities and they start to realize that there's, you know, all these beautiful little networks of food systems and little creatures and flowers in trees that perhaps they hadn't paid any attention to in the past. And once they get into beekeeping and the creative projects we do, it's, it's like they start to see things perhaps that they haven't paid attention to previously. So, yeah, I think it really opens it up. And then you add Instagram, which we were just talking about before uh, we started recording, and all of a sudden you start to reach a whole bunch of people. And the people that you reach are community and that's the really nice thing. So people that are interested in, in this sort of stuff seem to be attracted to it and bees are this amazing magnet for those sorts of people. They're so charismatic and they're so intrinsically linked to human history in so many ways. I think people find them, um, yeah, very, very intriguing.
0: Because there's so many parallels that that we can draw between the stories of bees and our own stories in terms of maybe organisation, maybe building structures, urban farming and perhaps there's this like another link in terms of I suppose nature existing or, or integrating with the city. So do you think that bees are uniquely positioned to be able to tap into all these different things or, or would it work with another example of another organism we live in close contact with?
2: I think that bees are unique for a few reasons. So our history is so entwined with bees um, because they've really followed humans around um, since the dawn of farming, basically. So as humans kind of walked up out of Africa, so did bees. They sort of came with us and we started to use them or manage them to assist with pollination once we sort of settled down and, and started to farm. So they've always been bound up in um, our culture and um, our sort of collective memory, if you like. And it's really interesting when you look at um, some uh, examples of uh, very early cave art in Europe, um, there's bees, there's honey hunters depicted and it's not my place to speak about what happens here in Australia but there's also really long, deep stories about um, honey hunting here as well. And I, there's this, been a symbiosis for a long, long time and they've been Bees have been uh, sort of—they've become totemic animals. They were totemic for the Egyptians, you know. So the, you know, um, they used to think that bees were the tears of the sun god Ra. And then you look at even more recent sort of European history, with um, the French being so preoccupied with ideas of bees being used in royal insignia and, and so forth. So I. I do think that there's this long-standing connection. There's um, a term that is used, which is bee cultures, and bee cultures is that intersection between humanities and honeybees, and it was championed by one of my heroes, Eva Crane. She did a lot of research on this. And I think for that reason, as well as for the reason that it goes beyond that, and um, unlike growing a carrot, for example, a carrot can't fly five kilometres in each direction and sample the different nectars of a city and bring them back for you to taste. And chickens are really, really sweet. I love them. But once again, they're in the backyard, you know, they're not getting out into the city, whereas bees literally fly out five kilometres from wherever you are. They feed on the landscape of the city and they really have that you know, what do the French call it terroir, you know, that like real taste of the landscape. And I think that humans resonate with it. And I think we always have.
1: I just wanted to ask perhaps why urban beekeeping is so important and how people in everyday society who maybe aren't aware of the importance of bees, how they can support the the system in terms of even just planting something in their backyard that is bee friendly?
2: Yeah, I think that... um, in the last century, we've seen this ever-increasing urbanisation of human populations. You know, I think I remember the day when it was announced that there were more people living in the cities now than there were in, in rural contexts. And that creates all sorts of issues for our societies around, for example, food and agriculture. So whereas everybody used to be involved in some way in producing their own food or at least understanding what those systems were, so you might know, Even as a kid growing up in Currumbin, we used to drive up the hill with our glass, um, you know, four-gallon bottles and go to the local dairy and get them filled up and then it was regulated and made illegal. But even in the 20th century, people were far more connected to ideas of food and food production. And in some ways, particularly in um, our sort of communities, we think of urban beekeeping as being something new, whereas... um, Last week I was fortunate enough to be in France in one of the oldest urban beekeeping uh, clubs right in the middle of the city um, in the Luxembourg Gardens and that's always, it's been there since like the late 1800s and so urban beekeeping has always been around. It's just that we've lost contact with ideas about farming and food production and that's where bees come into it because all of a sudden it it's a very compact way of reconnecting you with ideas about food production. And everyone thinks it's honey, but it also is about pollination. So all of the trees that you see on the street or in backyards that are citrus, for example, or apples, they're all, their yields are highly improved by proximity of bees, as well as a number of um, vegetables, and you know, other fruits that are in backyards all over the city and even in urban um, farms. So there's a little movement now of people bringing farming back into the city onto rooftops and community gardens. And I think that um, getting people to think about where their food comes from and whether or not it's sustainable and how it's been produced, all of those questions are super important. And urban beekeeping plays a role in that. And we're very fortunate in Australia because um, urban beekeeping's become very popular but from what I can see it's still sustainable whereas I think in some other cities such as Paris, if you speak to beekeepers in Paris, there are so many urban beehives there now that they're outcompeting the native bees and that there's some contention as to whether or not there's actually a sustainable nectar load um, in those cities, because they're also quite cold. You know, they you know for three months of the year the bees don't really fly. Whereas in Australia, we've got this wonderful situation where in most cities it's nice and warm, but we also have the largest flowering plants in the world. So we've got a situation here where it seems to be sustainable at this point in time, and it's just, yeah. To answer your question, it's this wonderful way of getting the public to to rethink food food security and even issues around you know are there nasty pesticides involved with the production of the food that you're consuming and how do they affect bees and there's this you know quite a big issue at the moment which you're probably familiar with about um colony collapse disorder so varroa destructor well varroa plays a role in it yeah, yeah. there was um but they noticed about 10 or 20 years ago that colonies uh, just started to disappear overnight and they weren't sure what was going on and they basically realised there was a whole bunch of forces impacting those hives that were sort of essentially making them sick and not capable of, of functioning anymore and Varroa was one of those, those issues. And interestingly in Australia we didn't seem to have this so-called colony collapse disorder and we also didn't have Varroa destructor until... June of this year, so it's it's landed now near Newcastle and uh, has sort of spread out to I think something like 59 locations in New South Wales. So it's a very, very challenging stage for beekeepers in Australia in the next two seasons.
0: Would you say that we've domesticated bees?
2: That That's interesting because when we think about ideas of domestic... Um, you know domesticity and domesticated animals we think of them as being friendly and tame and, and pleasant and although beekeepers particularly beekeepers in urban settings tend to try to select hives that don't have a lot of defensive behaviors at the end of the day they're still wild things and all beekeepers try to do is provide a a shelter for them, and 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 put them in a position where they're not too hot, and they're not too cold, and it's not too windy, and there's good food nearby, and good water supplies. And we try not to act like jerks around them too often, so they don't abscond. <laughs> but no, they're wild things, and we are just their sort of I don't know custodians. But um, yeah, they're they're unpredictable. They sting. Um, Do you get stung often? Yeah, I do. Yeah. 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 So um I look but I do a lot of beekeeping. Yeah. But and I tend to also not wear gloves, and it's not a macho thing. You tend not to hurt as many bees when you're wow. gloveless. Yeah. And you um you uh you slow down and you become very aware of what your body's doing. Well, because you've got skin in the game, literally. And there's this actually, can I sort of digress here on a little mindfulness? topic it's really interesting when you go gloveless there's this paradox and the paradox is you know that you're less likely to get stung if you expose your skin and so you end up having to be really comfortable with this idea that a sting is an outcome but one that you could avoid just by being calm and taking your time being slowly and uh, moving slowly and being aware of where your fingers and your arms and all the bees are in in space. So you become very, very focused on the moment. And, um, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. But accidents do happen and bees also crawl inside your shirt and hang out in there for three hours and then you realise as you sit in the car that, you know, you get stung. But you do get used to it. It doesn't become any less painful, but you do get used to it. Why are bees a superorganism? A superorganism is sort of defined as an organism that has different elements and all of them must cooperate and be present for the organism to function properly. So an example might be, um, you know, the Great Barrier Reef. So you have the architecture of the coral and the creatures that live inside the coral can't survive without the architecture. And the same thing occurs with honeybees. So they are a eusocial um, insect society, which means they have different castes of within the uh, the colony that that perform different functions. And so with bees, you usually have one queen. She doesn't rule. She's literally an egg-laying machine. Then you have a couple of hundred drones or male bees and they basically are the genetic bank, the sperm bank for the colony and their job is to go out and mate with other colonies that are elsewhere. And then you have the real brains of the organisation, the worker bees, so there can be 10,000, 80,000, it's their collective intelligence that manages the hive. So, lots of little simple rules that are combined to create beautiful complex outcomes. And one of those complex outcomes is honeycomb. That's the fourth element of the superorganism. So the bees can't live um, unless there's honeycomb, and that provide that's the architecture of the superorganism. It stores honey, it stores pollen. It um, provides thermoregulation. They raise their babies in there. So you've got these four elements, the queen, the drones, the workers, and the honeycomb. And if you remove one of those for any period of time, the colony, the superorganism will fail. So the idea of the superorganism is this sort of complex interaction between these different elements that are all required in order for it to thrive.
0: We've heard that bees send each other messages by dancing. Is that true?
2: It's very, very true, yeah. There's lots of different dances that bees do. The one that's probably most well-known is the waggle dance. And so the bees communicate the location of food or water or when they're swarming, for example, a prospective new home site and they come and essentially waggle their bum quite vigorously in front of their sisters, because it's always the worker bees that do this and they do it in a figure eight. And the more enthusiastically that they dance, the more psyched they are about the food source or the water supply. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really interesting because they've discovered that bees communicate concepts of time and space with the waggle dance. So they communicate where in relation to where the sun is in the sky, the food source is, for example, and the amount of time that they loop around in the figure A communicates distance. So they're, they're using the sun as a datum line and they always assume in their dance that the sun is at 90 degrees. It doesn't matter where it is in the sky, everyone understands that the sun is at 90 degrees and so if they're dancing... 20 degrees to the right of that, the bees know the food source is 20 degrees to the right of the sun. And if they dance, for example, three seconds in the figure eight, they think it's approximately three kilometres. So they can give some very specific instructions. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is about the sun with bees. Everything is about the sun. What type of bees do we have in Australia? There's... Many um, bees in Australia. Um, a lot of them haven't even been classified yet, so they haven't been given scientific names. There's a backlog of hundreds and hundreds of bees actually currently sitting in Museum Victoria that are waiting to be given names um, and there's many, many more that haven't been classified. But they their estimates are something around two thousand bees that are native to Australia. And the majority of them are what we call solitary bees. So they live by themselves. There are a couple of species of what we call social insects. So they live in nests or colonies or families. Um, They, and they would, they're sugar bag bees. And they're little, much smaller than the European honeybees and they're stingless. They're also called stingless bees. It's a couple of different um, species, but they tend to live in the really warm temperate areas, the subtropics and the tropics. So we don't have them in Melbourne. Interestingly, it's only social insects that create a surplus of honey. So those 2000 native bees that are solitary bees, they're not um, looked at in terms of being honey providers, but there is some really, really good research going on at the moment looking at native bees to do pollination work such as a blue banded bee with tomato pollination. The bees that we work with are the European or Western honeybee Apis mellifera and they were introduced to Australia so they came over with European people on their, on their ships as I was saying before like you know humans have tended to sort of move their favourite bees around with them and They are now, you know, what they call naturalized in the environment here. And in fact, um, we've got about 70% of our European bees are not managed. So they're living out there in hollow trees and and compost bins and and walls of buildings and stuff, providing a lot of free pollination. And about 30% are, are currently managed. There's a bunch of other, The mainland doesn't have bumblebees, but if you go to Tasmania, you'll see bumblebees. So I think they were introduced in the nineties. And there are these um, other species of bees that we think are up in the the forests of Northern Queensland, the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana, Um, but they uh, haven't made it too far South yet. But most of the bees that, that we talk about when we talk about bees are usually honeybees and they were, uh, introduced.
0: In Australia, we're used to hearing about introduced species becoming pests. Yeah. Why has that not happened with the
2: European honeybee? Well, you'll find you, there are some people who would, uh, sort of claim that they are. So they tend to, um, European honeybees find hollows in trees. So if they're in a, a tree hollow, you can imagine they're out competing parrots and birds and possums for those sorts of nests. And it was quite interesting because there was some discussion when it was, uh, when Varroa arrived, some people coming out saying it's going to be great for um, native animals because you'll have all of these uh, tree hollows freed up. And of course the European honeybees are generalist um, foragers, which means that they will forage on anything they can sort of get to and they're, Incredibly efficient at it. So they outcompete a number of um, Indigenous pollinators. But I think that that has to be weighed up with the fact that they are integral to our food security and our food production because they assist with the pollination of so much of our food. And that we, as part of our urban planning um, and just sort of landscape management, need to ensure that there's a variety of different habitats that are available for European honeybees and all of our um, native animals. And I think that we have to just make sure that it's that it's managed. But I think the real reason is that we all know that we need bees to produce the food that we eat. So they tend to stay on the charismatic end of the uh, introduced species spectrum.
1: I was gonna just ask about the 70-30 split mm. um, about managed and unmanaged because We've heard on another interview that you did that that's potentially why Australia still has this last golden age of honey. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to unpack that a little bit just before we move into the next section if that's okay.
2: Yeah, so um, I think it's attributed to the fact that until now we haven't had Varroa destructor. So Varroa destructor is this little mite It weakens um, the bees by feeding off their fats when they're larvae and as adults, and much like mosquitoes and other pests, it acts as a vector for disease. So it spreads disease around. When Varroa arrived in the USA at the, towards the end of the um, 20th century, I think it was in the eighties, 90% of their bee populations were wiped out, which is extraordinary. And then what has happened since with the US, for example, um, 70% of their bees are managed and only 30% are non-managed. And the reason um, that that occurs is that beekeepers intervene and they treat the mites and and build their numbers up. The situation in Australia uh, is very, very interesting because if you drive up into the gold fields in Victoria, so a couple of hours north from here, and you walk into some of those you know, um, ironbark forests, you only have to walk about 100 metres if you're paying attention to see nests, beehive, uh, bee nests in trees. So, in beekeeping terms, we call a non managed family of bees a nest, and we call a managed family a hive. So if I'm talking about hives, it's in beehives. If I'm talking about nests, it's, you know, uh, wild creatures. And that's also where we grow a number of crops and you, so you head north from there and you kind of get up into the irrigation areas and there's all of these bees that are essentially providing free pollination services for agriculture. Now, pollination is incredibly expensive for farmers. So and it's incredibly lucrative for beekeepers, which is why you've seen the almond lobby and the beekeepers associated with that essentially pushing really hard to allow almond pollination to go ahead because they're getting a couple of hundred bucks per hive for two weeks, you know, two or three weeks. And you multiply that by a 1,000 hives or 5,000 hives or even 10,000 hives, which is what some of these big beekeeping um, organisations run. It's a lot of money.
0: So does that mean that they move the hives to a, a location that's strategic for pollinating?
2: So you've got the difference between beekeepers like me who beekeeper in the city, we're stationary beekeepers. So we find a great spot for our bees, we leave them there. There tends to be one or two hives and they are 10, 15, 20, 30 metres away from the next hive. So the chance of varroa spreading between them is significantly less. But the big commercial beekeepers who, by the way, are actually required, like if we want our food pollinated, they move their bees to pollination. So they've all, they're have all they all coming off almonds now. Almond pollination just finished. It was like 100 and I'm not sure how many hives actually went up there this year because I think a lot of beekeepers may have been quite nervous about taking their bees there because the Sunraysia region, has the Wiggly Murray like going through it and so one side is Queensland one side's New South Wales but if you know you've got your hive in Victoria it could be literally a hundred meters from another hive from New South Wales um, but they want there's usually about 160 thousand 160 thousand hives that are moved from Victoria and New South Wales all down to Sunraysia just for almond pollination so you can imagine, um, now that we've had COVID, we know what a super spreader event is. And so they're there and then they all get taken away back to wherever they come from. So they might be going on to the next crop. They might be taken to um, a particular nectar source in a forest. And so the migratory beekeepers move their hives around from pollination to, you know, different nectar sources. And that's how you get those um, single source honey. So if they put it under iron bark, you're going to get ironbark honey. Even you know, if they put it... Um, In an orange orchard, you're you're getting that sort of that variety of honey. Whereas the urban beekeepers like me, we tend to leave our hives in the same spot. Um, There's less sort of chance of super spreader events, but you get polyfloral honey. If we lose 90% of our bees, it's also 90% of that 70-30 split that you're talking about and all of a sudden there's fewer um, sort of wildness to do the pollination and there's probably fewer domesticated or managed bees to do the pollination. So there's a real crunch potentially coming up for Australian food production and it's so surprising that it's not all over the media because this is the food that we eat, you know, we really rely and the, and the almond industry knows that they get a better yield if they've got bees there and that's why... They push really, really hard to get to get all the hives there. And what
0: what what's the status with Varroa at the moment?
2: Um, so it came in in June of this year, I think. Um, you know, June. Uh, when I say came in, it was discovered in a sentinel hive around a port in Newcastle. Now, because that was winter, you assume then that because the bees had gone through their breeding cycle, that they were probably here in summer when it was warm. So they tend to do their breeding in the warmer months. So it's probably been in Australia um, since the beginning of the year, at least. Um, And I did a quick uh, update this morning from the information coming out from the various agricultural departments. I think there's 59 sites in New South Wales where it's been identified and there's an eradication program, or at least there was. And I think there was, last time I checked, there was about 2000 hives that were destroyed. But the, as mentioned, the, pollinate, the almond pollination was allowed to sort of go ahead and that's just finished. But as of now, there's been no varroa discovered in Victoria yet or in Queensland. But I'm also, when I was speaking to my beekeeping colleagues in Europe uh, about this, they were like, it's here, you know, it's in Australia. There's no way you're going to stop it. And I think that as the season warms up, the bees start to build up. So we're in early spring now or late winter. So we're just coming into that period of time where the the, the bee colonies expand and there'll be more migratory beekeeping and the hives have come off pollination. I think that we can expect incursions is the word to occur in Victoria and elsewhere. So to get back to that idea of the last golden age of beekeeping, I think that's a that's a real sunset on that at the moment in the Australian continent and uh, I think it's sad that a lot of people weren't even aware that we just had the healthiest happiest bee populations in the world and that's very much under threat because the treatments that you have to uh, provide for a beehive are toxic you know formic acid oxalic acid these are treatment you don't want to get it you don't want to breathe too much of it in, miticide strips, things like that, you know. To help um,
0: manage the varroa once it's once it's in a hive or once it's in an area? In a hive. In a hive. So yeah. you
2: never get rid of it once it's in a hive. All you try to do is keep your mite count down. And right. so different types of the season you try to make these interventions, but the interventions are toxic. So, you know, there's certain rules about, you know, you, you probably wouldn't want to harvest your honey after you do treatment which suggests to me that you know it's toxic it's a it's like uh about the size of like a little pinhead and they actually attach themselves to the bees yeah like a flea but even smaller yeah like they look like a tiny little i mean australia a lot of australians are probably familiar with shellback ticks looks looks like a tiny little mite and they attach themselves to the bees and when the bees rub against each other, they jump from one to another or sometimes they sort of hop off on a flower and then when the next bee comes over, the, um, the mite jumps on them and, and sort of spreads around. Sometimes a bee in beekeeping, we have this thing called drifting. So let's say you have hive A and you have hive B and you've got them next to each other uh, the bee from hive A might get confused and drift into hive B or they may rob honey from hive B. So there's lots of ways that Varroa gets around because bees are social insects. They really are and they travel vast distances. And so there's lots of opportunities for Varroa to get out there and and um, it won't, once it's here it won't take long for it to get everywhere. I remember I referred Uh, a few moments ago to being in Paris. And the last time I was at that apiary was five years ago, I think, and the European hornet had arrived in France, but wasn't in Paris. And they were, I saw these sort of hornet traps that people were looking at and everyone was talking about it, but I didn't see one. This time in the apiary, there were three or four hornet traps set up. All of them had hornets in them. And we saw hornets flying around and the guard bees in hornet defence formation, they were just everywhere. And that's how quickly these pests get into a situation. Um, So within a few years, it will just be everywhere and beekeepers are constantly having to adapt to these rapidly changing conditions that we find ourselves facing. How are you feeling about it? It was quite interesting because I went back through some messages that I'd sent to people before I'd gone overseas and my tone was very much one of despair um, and uh, feelings of being overwhelmed. But then um, part of our trip overseas was to research how our European colleagues were managing Varela and after talking with them and observing what they do, I feel um, more... uh, I wouldn't say relaxed about it, but I'm feeling that we can approach this with um, a sense of, you know, managing it and trying to learn as much from our colleagues overseas who've been through this already. And, you know, um, yeah, I think we just have to deal with it because sadly, it's a little bit beyond our individual controls. We just have to adapt to these new circumstances. But it seems that that seems to be in every aspect of life at the moment. So, you know, Europe's in the middle of a drought. I met my cousin. It hasn't rained in the UK for seven weeks. And her yard, which is usually verdant green, as you'd expect in the UK, it looks like an Australian lawn in summer. It's crispy and brown. And so that's also affecting not only general life, but like beekeeping life. And there's a number of these sorts of massive changes that are, Affecting us at the moment, you know, COVID virus is is another one, and I think that as a society and as an, as individuals, we just have to be resilient and and positive, and you know, try to to make the most of it and and be as constructive as we can. Could you describe what one of your hives
0: looks like and how it works?
2: Um, I run what we call Langstroth hives. So Langstroth hives were developed uh, in the 1800s by an American, um, the Reverend Langstroth, and they have removable frames. So one of the conditions of being a beekeeper in Australia under our apiary code of practice, which is a voluntary code that all beekeepers follow, is that you have to have removable frames and that allows ease of inspection for disease um, and makes it, uh more convenient to, to harvest honey and um, there is some arguments about whether or not Langstroth hives are best for bees but my sort of approach is that bees will make a home in any number of volumes. So they'll make a home in really, really narrow wall volumes in a house They'll make a home in an expansive volume underneath a compost bin. They'll make a home in a big hollow log or a small hollow log. They're very adaptable. <clears throat> but what I tend to do is run the eight frame versions of those. So it's about 35 centimeters wide by about 59 centimeters long. There are eight removable frames in there that look a little bit like a picture frame, mm-hmm. I suppose. And how, how deep? Um, they are about. Yeah, I'm showing you um, the picture <laughs> of my hands. There are Well, there's two different types. There's the deep frame, which we tend to use for our broodness. So um, we let our bees have these sort of frames that are maybe about 20 centimetres deep, something like that. I think it's 18 centimetres. But above that we put what we call ideal frames, which are shallower. They're about 10 centimetres deep. And so we like to give the brood nest a lot of space and then we've, by using these smaller ideal frames, we've got more control over the depth that we, we give them. We tend to stain them um, with a non-toxic water-based treatment. Um, they're usually made out of pine, these boxes. We will paint the base because it's often close to the ground and so by using a non-toxic water-based um, enamel you're going to preserve the the length of the timber and they sort of <clears throat> maybe be one deep and one shallow box over winter but then as summer and was well, spring and summer comes in and the bees expand their family we tend to build them up so you get like these quite tall stacks when they're full of breeding bees and honey and we have a little strap that goes around it that, isn't really about closing it in terms of, um, you know, stopping people from getting in there. It's more if it gets knocked over, which does happen in in cities, you know, high winds, that sort of stuff. It kind of keeps it all together so you can sort of put it back. And so that's what our, our hives sort of look like. And we never paint inside them. It's always just timber and wax inside. And on the bottom of the hive, is the entrance. So you'll see the bees coming in and out of there. And we tend to face that to the east. So they get morning light. The bees get charged up by the sun. They have to get their little bodies up to about 35 degrees in order to be able to fly. Mm. Wow, it's quite warm. Yeah, so we face that either to the east or to the north. And the bees love to use the energy from the sun to help run their hives and they use that um, to regulate the, the warmth inside the hive. And, yeah, and we elevate them off the ground a little bit, usually on, on little bessa bricks or breeze blocks, concrete ones, and that keeps them out of the water, keeps the humidity down but also stops some pests sort of getting in there. So that's a standard honeyfingers hive, white paint, stained timber, Concrete breeze blocks.
0: Tell us about being a foundationless beekeeper.
2: Okay, so in conventional beekeeping, um, they discovered that if you insert a wax sheet, so it looks something like a sheet of cardboard, but it's made from beeswax, and you have the template of honeycomb embossed on that wax. So it's very, very sophisticated. So on each side, you essentially have a honeycomb pattern and they're slightly offset because that's how the bees build naturally. They will draw the honeycomb out on that template. Now beekeepers, conventional beekeepers love foundation. That's our term for this wax sheet, wax foundation, because you ensure that the bees are building comb where you want it. So it's going to be inside the frame that's inside the hive. So they're not building across one, two, three or five frames. They're building within frame one or frame two or frame three. So beekeepers love it for that reason. They also love it because the size of the cell is the size of a worker bee. So beekeepers want as many worker bees as possible inside their hives, because they're the ones that fly out and, you know, do all the foraging and et cetera, et cetera. We kind of have a slightly different approach, which is we think that the bees should be able to build different size cells and their own honeycomb based upon the needs that the hive has at any point in time. So sometimes they build small cells, Sometimes they build big cells, which is where the drones are bred. And if they're on a big honey flow, there's a lot of honey coming in. They'll build lots of big cells because it's quicker and faster and they can store the most amount of honey. Um, We think it's beautiful as well. So part of our approach to beekeeping is an aesthetic one and because honeycomb is often used in our creative projects, we kind of like to understand how the bees work. And by observing how they build their own comb, you can understand more about the, the honeybee superorganism. It is challenging, like it's some it's a skill that you need to learn because and quite often when people start, they have these horrible cross comb messes. And to be honest, it still happens with me. And once every, you know, uh 10 or you know, 15 new hives that we put out there, you'll you'll get bees that just will do that. But I think it's 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 quite rewarding because the honey, the honeycomb super the, sorry, the honeybee superorganism, I think, has an intelligence, and by letting them naturally build, and by being as low intervention as possible, you're giving them as much decision making about how the superorganism is structured um, that you can.
1: I suppose just on that, letting them build their their own way. Do you think that's less, it's it's more about keeping them as wild as as possible while they're in a hive rather than in their in a nest?
2: Yeah, so it's we, we sort of call it low intervention. So you're more likely to sort of see the behaviors that you would see in a in a nest when you let them build their own comb. So often they won't build, we have an expression called draw down. So they won't draw down a honeycomb over every single frame. Like you might find that this, the ones in the center are fully drawn down and then the ones next to it less so and less so and less so. And then when you visualize that inside a hive, you realize that they've built what looks like a um, an upside, oh, how do I describe this? Half a sphere. And that's how they build uh, in the wild. So the, the center of the nest, which is where all the brood are kept that they have to keep warm. They need to keep that around 35 degrees. They're on the big deep cells. And then the further you get out, you've got drones sort of out there because the drones aren't as important to, to the um, colony. You'll get honey out there and you'll get pollen out on this sort of end frames because that that's food, which is important, but not as important as what's going on inside the nest. And the last two might even, have honey in them when there's honey around and then they become empty so there's nothing in them they're just going to use them again next season so you get to see these patterns that you see um yeah in in wild nests.
1: Could we maybe move into then talking you refer to it as robbing a nest so actually the act of making honey and I mean I really love seeing all of your jars of honey and where they come from around Melbourne because of the different colors so could we talk about when you rob and then why the different colours that occur.
2: Sure. And, well, we call it robbing because I think this idea that you're harvesting, um, you're not really harvesting. Harvesting sort of sounds as though like you're just walking along snipping the um, heads of flowers or, you know, the heads of wheat or whatever it is. But with with beekeeping you're literally putting protective equipment on lighting your bee smoker, going into a a sort of a beehive that has 30 or 40,000 stings attached to the end of insects and you're trying to, as gently as possible, remove a surplus of honey, but we're definitely robbing it. We're not just involved in some sort of passive harvesting process. And by using the word robbing, it reminds you to only take the surplus. So we make sure that our bees have enough honey to get through the year in good conditions without any supplementary feeding. Um, So that's quite important by using language like robbing, you're always minded about making sure that what you do is sustainable and acknowledging the fact that you're making quite a big intervention on on the beehive. In terms of the different colors of honey inside the hive, It is quite fascinating because it will change not only from suburb to suburb, but it changes from season to season. And it's all influenced by the botanicals. You know, what is flowering in spring? What is flowering in summer? And different nectar sources produce different honeys. So for example, every few years, When all the ironbarks flower on a street where I have a hive in North Melbourne, you get this honey, which is basically black. It's really, really dark red. And it's a very, very robust, strong, woody taste. And you rarely see that here. Um, But you'll only see that right at the beginning of the season because the flowers tend to flower in March, April, May. If you pull that honey out of the hive then and then you go back in late summer to harvest, the honey will be a completely different colour. It'll be a golden colour because they've been feeding off a variety of other flowers that are usually exotic flowers. In other words, you know, they've been brought in, so sort of rosemary, thyme, clover, all that sort of stuff. Um, so you get completely different honeys with different types of, um, combinations of sugars as well and different flavour profiles. Uh, the standard kind of colour of a Melbourne urban honey is a gold. I'd sort of describe it as being golden. It is very floral. It's polyfloral. So when you taste it, it's quite sweet and flowery so it's not as savoury as, for example, the ironbark honey that I was talking about before. But even then you get these different, uh, yeah, yeah, different flavours and and, and different colours of the honey depending on what's flowering at that point in time, which is this wonderful reminder that, you know, we live on a landscape that produces different flowers and, and different types of food from season to season. What
0: are the big innovations that have happened in beehive design in the last couple of hundred years?
2: Um, So in a broad sense, one sort of reading of of beekeeping is that we started out as honey hunters. So um, we would find wild nests in tree trunks or in caves and we'd sort of get in there and sort of rob that honey. And then let's take a tree trunk, for example, and in Russia they would have these incredibly complex little geometric symbols that kind of look like hipster tattoos and they'd carve them into the base of the tree and it would say, you know, that's this is Ben's tree or this is Nick's tree. So the, the hive that is in this honey forest is belongs to that person. But then they realised that if they felled the tree that had the hive in it, and they kept the section of that log that had the hive in it and they moved it into one spot and positioned the hive vertically and they did that with all of their 20 trees. All of a sudden they had their beehives in the one place, they were on the ground, they didn't have to climb trees, it was less dangerous, etc. So you had the vertical log hive. Um, so this is one example of how honey hunting then became Uh, about managing vertical log hives in an apiary. And then there were these different types of many, many different types of hives, including the skep, which I think we kind of associate with particularly in the sort of uh, Anglo and French uh, tradition. It looks like a woven basket upside down that became very, very popular, but there was a big mess of honeycomb in there and the same with the log hive. So when you extract it, you often killed or really, really damaged the hive itself. And then the Reverend Langstroth and others, but he's the one who's credited with it. Like most of these ideas, there's a number of people who got a similar idea and then one person ends up getting the majority of the credit with it. They came up with the removable frame. Now his observations are really, really important because he discovered this thing called bee space and bee space is about eight millimetres. It's large enough for two bees to crawl back to back. So imagine that they're on frames that are next to each other. They can crawl back to back there. But that space is too small for the bees to fill with honeycomb. And it's too big usually for the bees to fill with propolis, which is a like another material that bees create, which is a little bit like no more gaps. And so Langstroth discovered that if you designed a hive and there was eight mils space between the top of the frame and the lid of the hive, the side of the frame and the wall of the hive, the bottom of the frame and the bottom of the hive, the bees couldn't fill gum gum it up with honeycomb or with propolis and you could remove the frame. And that was the breakthrough moment. And that has essentially been the dominant sort of... um, beehive design in one way or another. So you have all these different kinds of edits of that. So the French have a De hive and the, the British have their own British national hive, but they're fairly much based upon the premise of bee space and removable frames. And I think that that has been fairly, um, that's been the really, really big development. Then, you know, about I think eight years ago, the flow hive came onto the market, which I think uh, is seen as a development. But um, I'd argue that this idea that you have an operable plastic frame where you're substituting plastic for the honeybee superorganism and coupled with a very sophisticated marketing campaign. I don't think that it's a great um, bee-centred design direction. I think it's much more in that category of um, designs that we think improve upon nature. And I think that there are lots of examples of how there are many unintended consequences of how that goes wrong. And I'm also not convinced that introducing plastic into the heart of the honeybee superorganism at the very beginning of the food chain is the direction that we need to be taking good design now. But they also, it's still essentially working within the Langstroth concept of removable frames. So although they're not really removable, it's still working within that overall template. Who's in the collective and how does it work? I was thinking um, of trying to get a photo of every single person that's come beekeeping and um, There's like dozens, many, many, many people Um, and it sort of changes as people sort of, some people sort of come in and they beekeep for a year or two and then they might start their own beekeeping thing and they take off. Some people come in, beekeep for a little while and then they, uh, you know, go off and and do something else and then there's like a real core of people who sort of stayed um, with the project for a number of years um, COVID and the lockdowns really threw a hand grenade into it because so much of what we do is about community and so, um, and working together within groups, like physically you're sharing space over a beehive, you're sharing bee suits and things like that. So, We haven't really sort of figured out what we're going to do on this side of the lockdowns, Um, but at the moment, so there were probably like, there's usually about 10, 20 people involved. There used to be every season. Now it's sort of come down to a a much smaller number. The core group at the moment, the people that I'm collaborating with currently, um, I've got... Samantha McIntyre, who's also known as The Soda Fountain. She's a ceramicist and an artist. Um, Georgia Crane, who's been working with Honeyfingers for about five seasons now. Um, Jessie French, who's got her Algae Bioplastic Studio. Um, We are working on a show uh, later this year. Zoo Ohm, a a ceramicist who makes those beautiful little coil pots. We're also collaborating on a project this year. Um, A photographer called Philip Winn. Um, He essentially documents a lot of what we do. Um, A photographer called Sarah Panel. She's also worked with us on a number of projects and we're working on another project next year. A sound collaboration we're working on at the moment is with a group called Acid Springfield and we had a beautiful rooftop event where we were making analog uh synthesizer sounds with inserted microphones that were um touch responsive inside the hives. So there's like a few at the moment who are involved so it's like and this and that's a sp- a smaller kind of number and I'm sure that I've left people out who might be a little bit offended. And then we also <laughs> have our, um, our kind of, I'm working with Chibi who are one of our, um, you know, longest standing supporters of the project. We're doing some, a little collaboration with them and, yeah, I, I Peter Pipo. we're working with them, we're putting a roof on their new on their new premises. Um all our welcome bakery have always been great supporters, um, and we've got hives over there. Where, or we've been trying to get enough honey together to do a mead with the winemakers at Grey and Grey. Cool. So, yeah, there's a there's a few people who we're, we're sort of like working within the the collective. And how's it funded? Uh, through um, honey sales. Yeah. Through uh, social media and Instagram stuff that we do, which we found to be um, really great because it means we don't have to lean on the bees as much to produce honey. So people want to pay to look inside a beehive. Um, Through courses, beekeeping experiences, stuff like that. And we actually have had a couple of grants. So at the moment we've got a grant from Yarra Council. Thank you very much. And um, we'll probably move a little bit more in... direction but it's kind of been like a small business that that washes its own face really.
0: When I first heard about what you were doing I thought perhaps it was about disrupting the traditional honey industry but I see that it's it's something it seems now having spoken to you that maybe it's really something that exists totally adjacently to that.
2: Yeah it's really messy what we do and in the nicest possible ways when I speak to beekeepers they talk to me as though I'm a beekeeper, like a full-time beekeeper. And when I speak to artists, they talk to me as though I'm a full-time artist. And you know, when I speak to food providers, they talk to me in terms of it being all about food. And so I think that it's, um, it's all of those things and it's sometimes hard to describe or define. Like usually I try to define it in terms of what the person sitting across from me does. So, if they're an artist, I describe it in terms of being an art project. If they're selling coffee, I, you know, we talk. Um, but yeah, I think that it sort of sits alongside the kind of some of the conventional beekeeping stuff. And also, we've made a conscious decision just to keep it small. So, I mean, if I was running 150 hives, I could be selling a lot more honey but it's sort of not what we want to do and we can only ever sell as much honey as we can sustainably produce and it sort of rubs against that kind of idea that you have to expand and that you have to grow um but it has to remain fun and it has to be sustainable and we have to do it in a way that we think is best for the bees and for the people involved so yeah it's That's what it is at the moment. Should
0: we eat crystallised honey or or liquid honey?
2: Really great question. Um, So honey, like any food, ages and it changes its characteristics as it ages. So in the same way that a cheese ages and we're really into that, so we will say, you know, look for, I don't know, a a cloth-wrapped cheddar that's two years old Um, or, uh, you know, prosciutto, for example, you have to age that to get it to a certain, you know, um, quality and that that's a good thing. Some wines, we like to age and we talk about it as being really positive with some, you know, um, with some varieties of wine. Honey changes as well. But interestingly, in Australia, we tend not to talk about it and we tend to expect to have liquid honey, liquefied honey that is pretty much the same colour. So when I grew up, you'd go into the supermarket and there'd be the big brands. There's usually one big brand who I won't mention and then a couple of other ones that the honey was always the same and it was always runny. It didn't matter how long you kept it. Now the reason it's runny is it's been heat treated or pasteurised and essentially it changes the chemical composition of the sugars so they never crystallise and that way you've got like, a honey that uh, is always going to be liquefied and they blend it. So you've got, you can imagine if you're bringing in all these different honeys from all over the place and you mix it all up, you just get a brown colour. And that's what we kind of grew up with in Australia. But at Honey Fingers, we have really low intervention treatment of our honey. So the honey comes in in frames, We, we rob per site, So we're never blending all of our honeys. We uncap it with an uncapping fork. We put it in an extractor. We spin it by hand. The honey goes through a coarse sieve. So something that looks a little bit like a flower sieve, quite coarse into a little tank. And we literally pour off from that tank. We don't heat treat it. So you can kind of tell what season it is by how thick your honey is. So when it's nice and Runny, um, you know it's summer and it's probably fresh. If it's raw honey. So that's what we call unheated honey, raw honey. Then if it starts to get a bit thicker and crystallizes, what's happening is as the honey ages, the sugars and the waters are separating and it creates a crystallization. And the hardness of that crystallization depends upon the nectar source. So some honeys go super, super hard when they crystallize, but in Melbourne, they sort of just get a little bit thicker. And as they get thicker, the the, the taste and the mouthfeel changes. So you get these little crystals in your mouth. And as they slowly melt, the flavours released. And so crystallised honey can be fantastic, for example, for blobbing onto cheese, because it doesn't run everywhere and create a mess, you can sort of control it. And it gives you a little bit more texture, and the flavours are released more slowly. And what I think is a, a great idea for people who like honey is buy a, diff, buy a few different varieties. So mm-hmm. if you always want a runny honey, for example, to uh, for cooking purposes, have one, have a heat-treated honey or buy fresh during the season, but then keep a couple of different varieties of honey in there that perhaps have different qualities, that are different sort of ages um, and that have different um, degrees of crystallisation but if your honey is crystallized, you basically know that it, it hasn't been heat treated and it probably comes from a low intervention beekeeper. And if you want it to get a bit runnier, just get a saucepan, bring it up to about, you know, 40 degrees. Mm. So you can still, you know, you can put your finger in it and then just leave the honey in it for the day, stir it after about 15 minutes and the heat liquefies the honey again. But by keeping it about 40 degrees, you're not damaging the really sort of beneficial enzymes that the bees have in the honey. Whereas if you heat it up too much, you start to damage all the goodness that goes into the honey as well.
1: Would you say heat treated honey is not as good for you as a non-heat treated honey?
2: Well, I would say that, yeah, because Mm. I'm a, uh, but there's all sorts of stuff. (laughs) I I would say that too. (laughs) (laughs) So there's two processes that occur. And I did admit the other one, which is a lot of beekeepers finally filter their honey. So I was referring to the coarse filter. The coarse filter allows little bits of pollen to go through, little bits of propolis to go through, little bits of wax to go through. And so you get a much more, um, well, I would consider it to be a more complete honey because it's more representative of what is going on inside the beehive. You're not filtering out everything and just getting the sugars. And uh, so a coarse filtered, non-heat treated honey I think is more tasty because you've got complex things going on. And yeah, you get the added benefit of perhaps um, bee bread, which is fermented um, pollen from inside the hive um, and other pollen bits, you would get little bits of wax coming through, little bits of propolis coming through, and all of those things I think uh, are part of like a more complex sort of food and, and start to relate to things like your gut biome and, and, and things like that, particularly bits and pieces of the fermented stuff coming in. And I've got friends who have allergies and uh, I don't have allergies, but they tend to eat raw honey from the area they live in winter sort of leading up to spring and I think the idea is is you're exposing your body to you know the, 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 the botanicals that are in your environment earlier in the season you'll get medical experts who say that you know that doesn't work and it's not the case but I can only tell you that my friends do it and it seems to help them but you have to start it earlier so yeah there's definitely benefits to getting raw local honey from the landscape within, you know, which you live in. Um, yeah, and it's also just a really nice concept.
0: Could you give us two or three of your favourite ways
2: to have honey? Sure. Um, I think that my very favourite way to have honey would definitely be on cheese yeah. or with dairy. So I love putting honey on quite strong cheeses like a blue vein cheese because you're getting everything. You're getting sugar, fat, salt and acid all at once. And for people who haven't had um, honey and blue vein cheese, like the first time they have it, if they like it, it's sort of like a sort of I wouldn't say a life-changing experience but... They're genuinely surprised at how delicious it tastes.
1: I would say it is because I think I tried that at M Pavilion yeah. with the um, beginning of last year, year before.
2: Yeah, I think that that was at the... At the poetry reading. Yeah, the yeah. last day before lockdown.
1: Yes, it was very well-timed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and did you enjoy that?
1: Loved it. I'd never liked blue cheese before that but,
2: yeah. Yeah, I love mixing it with savoury things. So I'm, I'm a little bit more on that um, tip and also I love like a a soft white bread with cultured butter, so butter that's been fermented for a little while with honey as well. I think that's definitely up there and I do like it as a sweetener in coffee as well, like good strong black coffee. But nothing probably beats when you're beekeeping just cutting out a little bit of honeycomb and eating it fresh when it's still 35 degrees, you know, the warmth of the hive and the wax is really, really soft. That's probably the number one.
0: If there was one message that you'd like to spread with Honeyfingers, what would that be?
2: I'd say it would be to try to pay attention to the wonders and the beauty of the natural world around us and to take a little bit more time to look at what's crawling on the, the local shrub in your neighbourhood and think about The really complex but at the same time really simple connections between that and ideas around food security and how we produce our food and how that impacts upon the soil and the creatures that, um, you know, come from that soil and the plants that come from that soil. So just to be aware of, of the living world in a way that perhaps you haven't in the past and to consider that that wonder exists in the city too. Thank you so much, Nick. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for inviting me and in. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to Make Good. This podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We're an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www. Dreamalab.com.au or get in touch at studio at If you'd like to learn more about Honeyfingers, check out their website at honeyfingers.com.au or their Instagram, Honey underscore fingers. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamalab.com.au. Catch you next time.